I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Rachel Brown, Vice News reporter, no relation? No, no relation. I have the E, you don't. We're going to be talking today about whether covering Trump is anything like it was covering Harper, the CBC getting into the white power merchandising business. Yeah, not so great. We're going to be talking today about the rebel uh, and their recent fascination with launching weekly manhunts. And I might need to talk a little bit more about the CBC and Kevin O'Leary Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Paul Baker, Grant, John Santos, Stephen Rode, Jennifer Hollett, Mike Schroeder, Joe Plaskett, and Janelle E. Bean. Janelle, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you cut through the sea of cat videos and help me find news that I need to know. This episode is also brought to you by Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. We need this group now more than ever. I am a member. I support them. I have volunteered for them. And I think you should too. This group is not just about supporting press freedom. They are about supporting the freedom to expression of all Canadians. And I spoke to Duncan Pike, their campaigns and advocacy coordinator, about one thing that they've done lately that he is particularly proud of. Here's what he had to say. The work that I'm most proud of from CJFE has been working on our Journalists in Distress program. Uh, What that is, is journalists around the world who are being persecuted, who are being targeted for the work that they're doing for investigating organized crime, for investigating corruption in the government, or if they're just living in a country where the, uh, the, the government is just really hostile to press freedom for whatever reason. A journalist who is being persecuted in Turkey, I can't tell you her name because her, her family is still in danger there, 
Um, but we were able to, to get money so that she was able to get safely here to Canada. You can support CJFE by donating, becoming an ally, or by volunteering. You can do it all at cjfe.org slash donate. Do it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Okay, I want to start, Rachel, by just talking about the Canadian aspect of what's happening with Trump coverage. Trump, of course, is limiting access in a way that no one's ever seen before in terms of the White House press pool. And he is clamping down on federal government agencies. They're not allowed to do any social media messaging, especially when it comes to issues like climate change, all of which has a pretty familiar ring to reporters here in Canada. Yeah. And I would like to add, you know, it, he just straight up lies. His press secretary lies. So that adds a whole new dimension uh, to what's going on down there. And I think, you know, it's a big contrast to sort of what we saw under Harper as well. I mean, he wasn't going out there. His spokespeople weren't going out there, you know, sort of in the same blatant way that Trump's people are in terms of lying and just having a full on assault against the media. I mean, things were bad here, but I mean, people probably would be grateful to have what we had under Harper now as compared to what's going on. Yeah, no, it's definitely like way into the red past that. But it's it's interesting because when that was going on, one point that I think I probably made a bunch of times is like, wow, what a meek press corps that we're just taking it, that we're just accepting as the access gets limited and limited and favorites are played and government agencies are, are muzzled. And we just show up diligently to just report whatever talking points they want to cram down our throats. That would never happen in the States. You know, they're, they are absolutely rigorous about access and the journalists are much more aggressive. And 
that sentiment is sort of evoked in this Washington Post piece that basically stated because of the way Trump's new standard operating procedure, access journalism is dead. Merely just taking what we're fed and spitting it out, not going to do it anymore. And there's this larger discussion about like, it's time to get back to basics. You're not going to get it directly from the press secretary. You got to go and work your sources, be at the bar at night, combing through documents, FOI it, and uh, back to first principles. Very, very proud rallying cry for journalists. Your colleague, Justin Ling, hit Twitter to say, Coming from someone who covered a government that killed access journalism, no, this isn't how it works. The media as a whole will just devote less coverage to politics or worse yet, devote more time to meaningless punditry. You know, they can skip just broadcasting Sean Spicer's stage press conferences, but it'll be replaced with Kellyanne Conway giving those same talking points to Anderson Cooper. And uh, he concludes, a decline in access is never a good thing. Do you think we're going to, Justin, the cynicism is correct, we're just going to see the same process play out in the States? I think some cynicism is definitely warranted. And, you know, what's happening in the States puts journalists in a really tough position because as journalists, our job is to cover what it is that politicians are saying, what those in power are saying. So we have to go to the press conferences. You have to pay attention. You can't just ignore them because then we're not doing our jobs. But at the same time, other ways uh, to pursue the stories and the, the real stories and the truth have to be taken that much more seriously. Like you said, FOI, courting sources, talking to maybe lobbyists or even foreign governments to sort of get a better picture of what's what's going on. Um, as the weeks unfold, it's going to become clear, like you said, that the you know the messaging coming out from any sort of department in the states it's going to be muzzled, it's going to be stifled. It puts journalists in a really really tough decision because, like I said, they can't just ignore the talking points that are coming out. One big change that we can make is just in the language we use and sort of calling things as they are. NPR decided we're not going to use the word lie because it's divisive. New York Times put lie in a headline. They said, you know, tr- like what talking about Trump saying that uh, the popular vote, there were three to five exactly. uh, fraudulent votes. They, they call that a lie in the headline. And they changed the headline, actually, before it was something lighter, like a falsehood or something. Oh, and I didn't then, know that. then they changed the headline to include the word lie. And I was really glad to see it because it's like, no, we have to go there. Like you said, we have to call things for what they are. We can't just use sort of uh, soft terminology around these things. Yeah. And it was very technical how they got to lie. They said, look, just because he said something that isn't true doesn't make it a lie. There has to be uh, intentionality. There has to be a willful, like you knew the truth. You, you chose to say something that isn't true. And because in this instance, it has been pointed out out to him that there is no reason to believe that that's true. In fact, there's reason to go the other way. We can now call that a lie. And then BuzzFeed is like, shit, if, if the New York Times is calling it a lie, what are we going to say? They said, bullshit. BuzzFeed, right. like, you know, they upped them. As Josh Benton said, they called the lie and raised them a bullshit. I mean, maybe that's back to Justin Ling's point about, oh, this is just going to create more punditry and then the press is going to get more and more rabid or, or, but you know, a lie is a word with a fixed meaning. You know, it's yeah. that, that's not like an opinion or or just hyperbole. Like that, that, that means something when you there, call something a lie. It means there's malicious intent behind it. Or at least that it was a, you chose to misrepresent the truth. Exactly. You knew the truth and you chose to go the other way. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know like uh, that, that we're in a position to teach our American colleagues anything. I, I, you know, I don't know that we came out of that looking so good. Yeah, and I mean, even so far this week, or, or was it a few, a few days ago now, um, you had the Time Magazine reporter putting out the tweet about there not being the bust of Martin Luther King Jr. in the Oval Office anymore, but actually it was, and he had to correct himself. And that just uh, fueled Trump's you know hatred and disdain for the mainstream media. So now uh, reporters have to be even more careful about the facts and possible slip-ups and sort of corrections that have to be made are now amplified by Trump, who will just latch on to any sort of misstep as proof that 
the mainstream media is out to get him that were fake news. Uh, you know, he's calling CNN fake news just in a tweet last night. So I think, you know, there's going to be somewhat of a maybe a chilling effect. Um, reporters, some might be nervous uh, to take sort of bigger risks and come out with bigger bigger statements and that sort of thing. Could go either way. I mean, any little mistake is seized upon. That reporter corrected that, yeah. backed away from it completely, apologized. But it was evidence. It was evidence of the agenda. And so you could see the press being like, okay, we need to do our jobs much, much better. No mistakes allowed, which is, you know, there's always going to be mistakes. Right. But there's it, it just this sense of basic unfairness to one side. Any vulnerability or error is seized upon uh, to basically discredit and invalidate you completely, whereas... Trump, I mean, I, I know that setting them up, well, it is, it is an adversarial relationship, has sort of this free pass to just issue like blatant lie after blatant lie. No one can turn that same mechanism around on Fake him. Fake president or whatever. Yeah. yeah, or if they can, I mean, he's still the president. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. $10 shirts, white pride worldwide. White pride worldwide. Oh, are you kidding me? You want to know why you decided to buy that T-shirt? Because I agree with him. You wanted to buy a T-shirt. Yeah. Why? Because I thought it was funny. Rachel. Big sigh. <laughs> Marketplace does this. They set up these scenarios, these little social experiments. They've done this one before, actually. They've, they, they've done sort of this race baiting, uh, are we racist thing before um, a year or two ago where they had a woman dressed in, you know, first just her face, then uh, hijab, then a niqab, raising money for Syrian refugees and just seeing who would yell racist shit at her. Now they pulled up a van onto a busy corner in Toronto and they had some like white guys with mustaches and, and uh, you know, MAGA hats selling white, white power, pride. white pride paraphernalia. Yeah, I think there are a lot of issues around this. I mean, from a journalistic point of view, I mean, setting up these fake scenarios, whether or not they're social experiments. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, not everything lends itself to this kinds of social uh, experiments. And in this case, I think it backfired big time. You know, having this guy, like you said, this mustache guy, this actor, he comes up at the beginning of the episode and says, I'm, I'm, I have a script I'm following. I'm an actor and we're going to see how racist Torontonians and people in Barrie are. What's the big deal, Rachel? What's wrong with, with pretending to be a white power uh, merchandiser? And what's the big deal? Well, I mean, it's this, it's this sort of gotcha journalism. I don't think it actually reflects from the reality of right-wing extremism on the ground. I mean, you saw in the in this episode, he'll someone will come up to him buy a t-shirt or think about buying a t-shirt. The host will get on a walkie-talkie and then go after the person who bought the shirt and say, "Why did you why did you do this?" They sometimes would talk to her, sometimes they would just run away, and I just don't see the value in sort of accosting people like that uh, in sort of this manufactured scenario. I mean, only a, f a few t-shirts were bought, and I just don't think, I don't think that is the way to go about looking at the broader actual problem of right-wing extremism or intolerant sentiment or racism uh, in this country. It just, it's sort of, I think there are better ways to go about it, because there are actual storefronts, businesses that are selling these things. We're talking about the Rebel. The Rebel has made Canada great again, stuff for sale, etc. There are actual marketplaces, actual places of business that aren't, you know, set up as fake pop-up truck vendors by the CBC, um, you know, that are actually selling these things. Yeah, no, I think that this was an embarrassing fiasco for a few reasons. Like you say, like, even if this all follows through as it was anticipated, we're going to find the racists in who – and they couldn't even find enough people, it seems, who bought the stuff. They had exactly. to go and accost people who were thinking about buying the stuff. And then if this is such an aggressive, in-your-face, like, stunt journalism thing, have the balls to show the people's faces. They, they, they blurred out the faces of, we've caught them. Here's a racist who is considering buying a T-shirt. 
and we blurred out their faces because, you know, it's sort of like a little bit trying to toe that line. But then yeah. what does that ultimately prove that somebody was concerned? I mean, first of all, I know that. I know that there are people who are sympathetic to exactly. that. Exactly. And the larger problem with this, I think, is that, I mean, this is like on Bloor Street, a very, very multi like, like real, it's Toronto. I love Bloor Street because it's just like, uh, it embodies just like the, the complete mishmash that is Toronto. And there's just like the commerce and all the food and, and just tons of different kinds of people walking in each direction. And everybody who just walked past there, unless they watch Marketplace, and to be fair, we all watch Marketplace. Unless, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if they miss sure. Marketplace, they're just like, oh, I guess they're selling white power T-shirts on my street now. Like, like that's what a lot of people now accept as part of their reality, that that is something that is actually happening. So, like, what, mm. like is that really what the CBC should be doing is, like, leaving people with this impression that uh, we, we're now at a place where that's just open, ha- happening openly on the streets? I think it ignores the fact that most of the right-wing extremism in Canada is mostly relegated to online online places. And in the States, I mean, the symbolism and the imagery and the merchandise that they were selling is all from a movement in the States, which completely proliferated. Like, the whole point was that they were outside of the gaze of, of your neighbors and you're safely in your home on your computer and you're like with your community getting angry and angrier and buying stuff via mail order and donating money. Like, like this whole thing couldn't have happened without these sort of internet communities. So the idea that this is like a, a street-based phenomenon, like it just misunderstands. Like if you really want to know, could it happen in Canada? Is it happening in Canada? It's not a good way to find out. One thing I will say that I thought was helpful. It did show more than people buying t-shirts. It showed Canadians or people walking by on the street kind of intervening and calling this guy out for, for what he was doing. And I think that was pretty heart, pretty heartening to see. And the expert in the show noted this, that, you know, we're seeing a lot of people go out of their comfort zone and confront this guy, um, you know, just people walking down the street and they're, they're calling him a racist. They're saying this doesn't belong in Canada. And he's sort of, according to his script, fights back and say, oh, we need to protect Canadian values. And they go at him you know, based on that, saying you're the one who's who's you know an affront to Canadian values. So I think that was helpful to see, but the fact that this was sort of manufactured, uh, you know, in a fake scenario, makes us ignore that. And I think it was heartening to see people get involved. Yeah, my guess is that'll be part of their defense of the piece. Is that you know, will heroes emerge? And you know. Poor fucking actors, though, huh? You got to take whatever gig you could get. And, like, that is not... I felt really bad for him, too. And he he didn't seem that comfortable with the whole thing. Um... You think? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he he committed. He had his method together and everything. But, yeah, I like, you know what? Shit is real right now. We don't need to have these like bizarre stage scenario like like it's actually happening it's right. y- you don't need to to you know gin up this stuff it's it's there a 14 year old canadian girl has been sexually assaulted by a syrian migrant the young girl's mother who asked that she and her daughter have their identities protected during this report she told us that her daughter was approached by two syrian migrants who are enrolled at the canadian high school Both of the migrants attempted to grind with a 14-year-old girl before one of the migrant students came up from behind her and aggressively touched her, her body, her breasts, before forcing his hand down her pants, touching her vagina from inside her underwear. 
The young girl's mother said that her daughter isn't alone. She told me that there have been several complaints from other girls too. Reports of Syrian boys groping and touching girls' breasts and trying to touch girls' vaginas at previous school dances as well. The girl's mother then said that she believes that the perpetrator is getting special treatment as though he is above Canadian law simply because he is a Syrian refugee. That was Faith Goldie. Are you scared? No, I, I don't mean to belittle this because there, somebody did make an accusation of sexual assault. That accusation needs to be respected and the possibility that that happened needs to be taken seriously. And, you know, there is buried in there a valid question about why the cops didn't take this any further. I don't know that we got the definitive answer to that. My criticism here has nothing to do with the accuser. That piece immediately raised a red flag with me because her first sentence is, a 14-year-old Canadian girl has been sexually assaulted by a Syrian migrant. A definitive declarative statement of guilt. Exactly. Yeah. So before we get into anything else, I was just like, wow, how did she get there? Was that the result of uh, like confession? Or... Was there, yeah, was there, <laughs> like, did he confess? Uh, was there, is there videotape evidence? Was there a trial? And all we hear her say is it happened. And I, and I know it happened because it was verified because I FOI'd it, which sounds very journalistic and, and very serious. That she, she filed a freedom of information request. She had emails that verified this. And then I read the emails. And like the second thing said in the emails is that the, is that the accused denies it. Right. He denies it. He says it didn't happen. And that's not mentioned, if only mentioned once. No, 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 it's not mentioned. In the piece. It's not mentioned. This is just the basics. Forget about like journalistic integrity or principles. There are legalities here under, you know, just like the basics of you get both sides of the story. And, you 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 know, if it's still at at the level of accusation, you report it as alleged. The word alleged was missing a hundred times in there. Oh, yeah. I looked out for it. And she said it. Towards the end, this alleged assault, she says it, I think, one time. After repeatedly saying that this happened. Yeah, and accusing this, you know, calling this guy a, a Syrian migrant sex attacker. Like, it's just, the the language is... I was really appalled by this because I worked through the steps of, like, Ezra Levant understands libel law. He has been, He sure does. <laughs> he's launched a bunch of libel suits. He's lost a couple libel suits. You don't say this because you will not stand to any kind of defamation claim. However, putting myself in his position, like, can we go this far? Can we walk across a line that I'm not aware of anyone ever crossing before? So why did Ezra Levant go? Why did the rebel go? Why did Faith Goldie go past a line that no one ever went before? Like, they they would lose for sure. And the only thing I could come up with is, this kid is a Syrian migrant. Right, exactly. And it fits into their whole obsession with going after Syrian migrants and any sort of refugee or But it works two ways. It works two ways because it it suits their bias. And and Faith Goldie has been launching this assault of months. uh, For months, she has been like hanging over these schools in the East Coast, talking to like listening to any third hand account of anything that might have happened and painting these like kids as like raving rape gangs with just no evidence. But I think you can probably rest assured that this kid is not going to sue the rebel because he is a disenfranchised, he's not a citizen, he's a minor, and he would have to come out and say, it's me. This is my name. I'm suing Ezra Levant. And he has so much disincentive, financial and otherwise, that this allows them to target this guy and, and nationally call him out as a like guilty sex offender. 
Now, they don't mention his name as a minor, but I'm sure everyone in his school knows who they're talking about. Right. Because and she didn't even call him. She didn't even call and, and get his, his side of it. Like, this is a whole new territory. I don't know uh, sort of the backstory, but, but I wonder if she even knows who the person is, if the mom or the, you know, the accuser even told her. I have to imagine that the accuser knows who this kid is. Sure. But whether Faith even knows and just sort of, you know, it, the whole thing, like you said, is third party information. It's the mother of this girl. Uh, the whole thing is just so much rooted in hearsay that it's just it's unbelievable, like you said, that it got this far. Yeah. And it ends, of course, as so many rebel stories do with this idea that, you know, the media is ignoring this. I've been working on this. The evidence is there. We've released the FOIs and there's a cone of silence, she says. The media won't touch this, but we're going to bring you the truth and we're going to stand up for the children, our our Canadian girls. I want to talk about that for a minute because, like, I think that there is a sense that they are so beyond the pale in what they're doing that a lot of people don't want to get into the muck with them. And they're and they're vicious. Like they will – similarly, they're looking for any kind of perceived hypocrisy or bias on the part of the mainstream media. And then you, we saw what they did with that Haley Germain young reporter, took out her name as a, a website address and launched this whole ca- intimidation campaign against her. There's very powerful disincentives to criticizing the rebel or even reporting on the rebel. And then if you don't talk about what they're talking about, then you're just the mainstream media who's under a cone of silence because you're afraid. Yeah, and they thrive on – confronting anyone who questions them, like especially if it's coming from a reporter with the mainstream media, someone, you know, I'm sure that that she's going to tweet at you after this um, for even calling out the reporting or the lack of reporting. I, I welcome it. I think that they might be a little bit afraid of me because I I, I am, they like to try to uh, classify Canada Land and me as like, you know, SJW. Like, yeah. I don't know, maybe they can make that fit. I don't really feel like that's, I, I'm not carrying it a flag for any side in this, but like I have some just basic questions about like, how do you report on a crime without calling up the accused? How do you report that it happened without knowing that it happened? It's new territory. It's, it's scary. I'll talk about them every time. And I, there's a lot of people who like, don't, don't feed the trolls. Don't say their name. Breitbart was ignored by yeah. a lot of, and, and look what happened. Like the, the rebel is getting very, very big. Yeah. It's flush with cash. You know, according to, to Ezra, there's a, a piece in McLean's this week about, you know, just how much crowdfunding he's been able to do and is very proud of the fact that he doesn't get any sort of grant money, doesn't get any government money. The amount of reach that they're getting and the amount of funds that they're getting, um, you know, is is alarming and people need to pay attention to what's going on. A number of experts on, on right-wing extremism in Canada are looking to the rebel as sort of the a, a, the big example that we have here of the so-called alt-right leading the charge. Absolutely. And, you know, w- with Trump's victory and Canada going me too, me too in certain corners, uh, we have the conservative party is, is in disarray. Conservative media, like what is it? Post-media, they're circling the drain. This guy has a mailing list of hundreds of thousands of names. He has a YouTube channel with like a half a million people. Like that's strange to me, the size of that YouTube channel. And, <laughs> but I don't dispute this guy has a huge audience. So any kind of conservative political campaign that you're mounting, you're now like you, you can't afford to ignore – this base that that uh, Ezra has been able to, I mean, very savvily, he, he's, he's taking his uh, strategy book from Breitbart, from the American alt-right. I'm watching them very closely. And what I'm noticing is that these campaigns against individuals are happening really frequently. So we have the, the, the Syrian sex attacker teenager. And then we had uh, this manhunt for this idiot who at one of the women's marches uh, smacked the camera of Sheila Gunn-Reed. I'm having a, I'm trying to have a conversation Go with away. you. Go away. Get out of my fucking face. I will break your camera. You do not have the right to. 
Her footage starts right before it happens, so we don't know. I know that Lauren Southern does stuff like she goes to demonstrations with counter-messaging and signs, and she baits and goads people. Mm. And I think, you know, I'm scared of any crowd, and there's an idiot in every crowd, and she gets herself in a situation where it's not an accident that people act poorly and sometimes act criminally uh, when agitated. I don't know what Sheila Gunn-Reed was doing prior to this, but I know the rebels' history with trying, you know, these are, they're not just there to report. They're there to, to create these these situations. Yeah, instigate the sort of outcry. Yeah, instigate's the right word. But, you know, an assault is an assault. We do have yeah. the right to go and photograph people. We have the right to ask uncomfortable questions or even to scream counter-messaging at them, and you're not allowed to smack you back. This guy smacks the camera. Uh, Sheila Gunn-Reed immediately says, you just hit me in the face. I think Ezra Levant later said he punched her in the, in the face. Punched, yeah. I have no idea what damage there is. I, I think that it's, it's right that this guy was was charged. It's interesting that immediately afterwards, there's a woman who is, I think, trying to help Sheila Gunn-Reed and saying, go to security, take your footage, take your footage to the cops. Uh, you're right to be angry. You're right to be angry. Um, let's not escalate this. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. And Sheila Gunn-Reed yells at her, you feminist, you victim blamer. I, I have the sense that, like, come on, like, we, we, all of this was preordained. Or at that, least they hoped something like this would happen. Yeah, the, you know, and the idea that at a women's march, like, it's, it's so perfect. At a women's march, they're going to defend a man over a, a man who hits a woman over the woman because they're, they're just more interested in, in their politics than they are in about actual for protecting women from violence. That, 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 that was like, it's almost like you could kind of write it beforehand, like this will be great. And even she was talking with a woman who was trying to help her and, and throwing these insults at her. The buzzword insults that they attribute to sort of SJWs as well, like, you know, the word victim blamer that she was saying, it's just they, they kind of call people out for using that term also. So it's kind of interesting to see them use it against other people. Yeah, in both of these instances, actually, they're kind of using the first one. It's, it's like, okay, the left has this language about sexual assault and believing women. So let's let's believe this woman who says that Syrians are, you know, yep. uh, it, there, there's a judo flip thing here happening. But to me, it, it's really alarming that we're seeing like, you know, then they went and had this manhunt for this guy. Put a bounty out on him. They put a thousand dollar bounty out. Who knows who this is? Let's find him. And, you know, the repercussions, I want to do more work on just like what happens when a horde of very angry people decide to ruin you online? And is this just sticks and stones can break your bones and like just ignore it and it'll go away? Or what are the repercussions for you if you're hacked, if you're doxxed, if you lose your job? I want to know, you know, and if anyone out there wants to come, we're, we're looking at kind of telling some of those stories. Yeah. And, and we should be concerned about any kind of vigilante justice. I don't, you know, that's not a, it's not a legitimate form of you know, pursuing criminal behavior. It just isn't um, for the rebel to sort of, you know, go in and out of praising proper proper legal uh, procedure, but then also kind of uh, champion this vigilante approach. It just, again, it shows their sort of contradictory and sloppy ways of going at things. Yeah. 
You know, I, like, I don't know. I, I get mail like, you know, like, so now we're, we're like, maybe I'm in my bubble with, with people who listen to this show and he's got his bubble of people. And there's no point. There's no point in fact checking or, or correcting or analyzing. I, and I, I have to believe it's not true. And like, there was this this one incident where I was getting, uh, when I challenged Faith Goldie, like, why, why have you not couched this into terms of uh, alleged crimes? I don't want to suggest anything. I don't know if he's one of the, the rebel faithful or not, but there was sort of a, kind of an angry Twitter commenter who said, what do you mean, allegedly? It's right there in the FOI, like she said. Although it's not. <laughs> and, and I said to him, have you read the FOI? Because it actually says that this guy uh, denies it. And the guy said, oh, no, thank you. I, I assumed that that's what the FOI had said. But now that I've read it, I can see that, it, that that's not there. And I said, that's okay. I think you were intentionally misled. And then a couple other people kind of, you know, because she's sort of crossing the wires of a lot of MRAs are coming back at, at, at Faith Goldie and saying like, I don't like the use of anonymous sources here. I have no problem, by the way, with the use of anonymous sources. Right. But, you know, Faith, uh, I'm on your side, Faith, but like, you know, this is just an accusation, isn't it? Did you get the guy's side of it? So, you know, maybe there is a point in, in counter-messaging this that, you know, some, you know, just to get people to look at the material, if, if not like switch sides. Or, exactly. You know. I mean, at least they put the material up there, uh, which was which is a good thing. And, you know, other media outlets like CP have uh, have looked at these documents as well and have come out with much more measured uh, reports based on the, those documents. You know, there's no need to go out there and talk about a Syrian migrant sex attacker. Um, those documents raised uh, other legitimate concerns that these communities have right now. When dealing with a number of Syrian refugees who have arrived and are, are living there, there's issues around lack of funding for language services, integration uh, other integration issues that that uh, schools and other uh, community groups are facing, and they're calling on the government to you know provide support for this. And Syrian refugees themselves are, you know, sort of criticizing the government for in a number of ways leaving them in the lurch. So those things are outlined in those documents as well. But of course, the rebel doesn't care about those sorts of things. No, and it it, it makes things difficult because you know what you've got people coming from uh, war torn, like horrible genocidal kind of a situation. They've all like lost family members. They've seen things that I don't want to even think about. A lot of them are children, and they're in Canada for the first time. Yeah, there are going to be problems. Mm-hmm. You know, there are going to be problems. There's going to be violence. There's going to be there, like all of this stuff uh, might be happening. So, some of the worst of it could be happening, and they need help. And the people who they're integrating with need help. And like, it just makes it very hard to do it when there's this like. You can kind of call up Faith Goldie, anonymously drop a dime, and, you know, you'll hear in that the mom is like, oh, and this happened to other people as well. Faith Goldie reports that. Like exactly. now, now, now we're not on secondhand. We're on, like, thirdhand and fourthhand information. No diligence on like, those specific cases done in terms of the reporting. I can't see how that helps that community. Certainly doesn't, no. Let's duly note a thing or two. Rachel, will you begin? One thing that's caught my attention this week is that the trial for uh, a man in the Netherlands who's accused of cyberbullying a BC teen, uh, Amanda Todd, who took her own life in 2012 after she was uh, sexually exploited online. The trial for him is starting in in the Netherlands. He's accused of also sexually exploiting and cyberbullying a number of other men and women and young girls. uh, And uh, I'd like to note that he's eventually going to be extradited to Canada for a separate trial here. And I think it's going to have uh, big implications for the way we think about cyberbullying internationally and sort of our laws internally in terms of dealing with it. Duly noted. I would like to talk for a moment about uh, the results of this public policy forum inquiry into this research project, into the news business that I've talked about a lot on the show and that there was an episode dedicated to. What is the government going to do to bail out, oh God, the news industry? What are they going to do to change regulations to try to uh, create a better environment? Well, Ed Greenspan's think tank is, is coming out today 
uh, the, you're listening to this on Thursday. It's come out today. We haven't had a chance uh, to look at it yet, but we'll be talking about the actual findings and the recommendations that they're going to be sending to government uh, once we have a close look at them. But I did want to note, Rachel, that the heritage minister, who like all this stuff will be going to, Melanie Jolie, there's this article about her in the French-Canadian press about how she came back from some conference really concerned about this fake news thing. And, uh, yeah, and with some stern words, like, she's she's really going to look into this fake news thing and see what role government might play in cracking down on fake news. And I don't know if that's sort of like a portent of actual policy that's going to happen or if she's just like she's said some things off the cuff before that uh, I think were just sort of sloppy messaging. Yeah. The idea of government getting into the business of determining who is fake news and who is not is terrifying. Is terrifying. And if, if either way, like either she shouldn't be saying that stuff if there isn't a, any actual plan there or if there is a plan. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we, we're pretty troubled or we should be pretty troubled about Donald Trump calling certain news outlets fake news and not fake news. So, uh, yeah, it'll be uh, interesting to see if that same sort of rhetoric or accusations come from our own government. And if so, what that will mean for folks like our friends at The Rebel. Duly noted. Okay, I'm glad that his name flared up and then disappeared just as quickly. And I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry for talking about Kevin O'Leary again this week. But when we spoke uh, last week, Sandy Garasino and I, after he announced that he was entering the conservative leadership race, it was before a couple of interviews with him ran. There, there's always already this suggestion that he was going to distance himself from all of the crazy batshit stuff he said when he was on the Lang and O'Leary exchange. The first thing I was just like, oh, I remember him saying some really crazy stuff. Now that he wants to run this country, let me find some. And I found this one where he says that anybody who's in a union should be thrown in jail, you know. And then that, uh, after we tweeted about it and spoke about it, was was he was presented with that. And, you know, what do you say about this? And as I imagined, he he basically said that. Nobody should take that seriously. Here, I'll just quote him directly. He said that comments that he made as a television personality don't matter. It's all irrelevant. It was great television. This is different. This is the real deal. And I'm actually not so interested in talking about Kevin O'Leary as much as I'm interested in what that means for the CBC. Because the CBC News Network put this guy on the air night after night, looking very much like... He was on a news show. He was a man in a suit with graphics behind him talking about current affairs and news and interviewing people about what was happening in the news. And he now says it was all just – in another interview, he basically he, – he conflates – he puts together Dragon's Den and Lang and O'Leary Exchange. That was all reality TV. Mm. So what, what accountability is there for the CBC – who, you know, withstood a lot of criticism at the time. Like, why is this guy on the air? He has no journalism background. Like, oh, he's a commentator. This is fun. And they've created this celebrity who now has the biggest name recognition as he enters into this race. And now he disavows everything he said. Like, so they were broadcasting on public airwaves on their news channel a bunch of stuff that he now says is just nonsense to make a great television. Well, I mean, I think it's more the onus is more on him rather than on the CBC at this point. You know, he can say all he wants that it was just reality TV and or maybe I didn't mean it or it's irrelevant now. The fact is, is that he he did say those things and, you know, he was given this platform by the CBC. CBC should maybe think about, you know, what the implications are that for future programming. But he obviously took advantage of the platform he was given and 
you know, presented his views. And I think, you know, it's up to us and others to still hold him to account for those views. I can't imagine why we would just suddenly ignore all those things he said. No, I, I, and I'm not suggesting that we shift the culpability from him uh, to the CBC. I think he was a cynical opportunist who saw that the CBC was really interested in just pursuing right. a CNN, Fox News even, screaming, talking head, like play a villain and you'll get on. And he was on like three shows at one time. When I started talking about this, one of the producers of that show, Solomon Israel, CBC producer said, speaking as a guy who helped produce those broadcasts, Jesse, CBC never characterized them as news. I think you know that too. So I don't think CBC is off the hook for that. Like that is their excuse. That has been their official stance on this. Oh, it wasn't news. CBC News Network, CBC News logo underneath him, news stories discussed, and they are they want to play this game about like well the difference between news and current affairs and commentary uh, give us the clearance to and like at what point are we finally going to really have a very frank conversation with our public broadcaster about like this policy of building up celebrities, chasing celebrities, putting people with no journalism background on the air. Like celebrity is really, really dangerous, volatile stuff. We're seeing what happens when like you can't contain it. They want to contain it. It's not news or it's not politics. Like now it's that's spilling it's, into the public. That's the political it. sphere. Yeah. No, their, their, their hands are not clean on this one. You know, like there's changes happening there. Fiona Conway is this uh, CBC News boss who the big hire, very expensive hire from ABC News. She just got pushed out this week and they're looking for a new president over at the CBC. There's a lot of internal mm-hmm. conversation as to whether or not they're going to hire a journalist finally for that job. Uh, you know, there there is this opportunity for them to kind of change direction. And I'm hearing a lot of noise from people within the board is changing over. Like, are they going to go the right way or are we going to see more of the same? And really, there's been so much change in Mansbridge is out. The only continuity really is at the very top of news, Jennifer McGuire, who oversaw all of the, this personality brand building. Right. Um, she's still installed there. So we're, we're keeping an eye on it. Yeah. In terms of, you know, the leader moving forward, it'd be nice to see maybe a different approach to choosing um, the president, um, maybe moving away from something like a political appointment, you know, which has a whole bunch of issues tied to that. Maybe open it up to, you know, where people have to kind of prove themselves to the public that they're worthy of this job. Um, It'd be interesting to see a different approach. It'd be great to hear Melanie Jolie talking a bit more about that. Definitely. As as opposed to some kind of crazy crusade against fake news. Like, because this has traditionally just been an appointment from the PM, you know, a federal without any kind of consideration for what we want out of this organization. Yeah. And, and, you know, sort of what the role of all these different things like commentary and news that's not really news. Like, we need to have more discussions about what exactly is going on uh, within the CBC and what it is that we you know, want it to, to be in the future. I want more lingerie ads, <laughs> which they got into this week. Um, there I did is, not see that. Yeah. <laughs> there is a, on CBC's Great Life page, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's like they're dabbling in, in soft in soft core. Like it was, wow. it's, it's just a pre-Valentine's Day guide to lingerie. So hopefully they'll, they'll, there'll be a pro-lingerie president. I don't know what they're doing. Fingers crossed. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can reach me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. And we are on Twitter at Canada Land. Rachel, where can people find you? On Twitter at RP underscore Brown with an E. Brown with an E. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This show is produced by Katie Jensen and syndication is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, 
please support us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.